Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. I'm glad you joined us for today's podcast. We're going through a special series called Simply by Grace, the book. When I wrote Simply by Grace, I never dreamed it would have such an impact and be translated into a dozen languages with more in the works. It's published in English by Kriegel, and you can get the book at our website, gracelife.org, or on Amazon, or wherever you buy your paperback or digital books. Like a lot of folks, you might want to buy a bunch and hand them out to people who need a better understanding of God's amazing grace. Grace Life ministers around the United States and the world sharing the gospel of grace with unbelievers and the grace of the gospel with believers. Our ministry is supported by folks just like you, and that too can be done on our website, gracelife.org. What we'll do now is read a chapter of Simply by Grace and follow that with an interview on the topic of that chapter with someone who's going to give further insights about that aspect of God's grace. So, if you're ready, we'll dive into the book. Chapter 4. Saved by Grace The Bible could not be clearer. We are saved by grace. There is no other option. How, then, can good people disagree about what that means? Because people have different ideas about what grace means. When simple grace is confused with works or merit, it ceases to be grace. Some erroneously teach that to be saved by grace means... We must believe in Jesus as our Savior and surrender to Him as our Lord. Or, we must believe in Jesus as our Savior and also promise to serve Him. Or, we must believe in Jesus as Savior and turn from all sins. Or, we must believe in Jesus as Savior and give evidence of a changed life. Or, we must believe in Jesus as Savior and obey His commandments. Or, we must believe in Jesus as Savior and be baptized in water. All of these state, we must believe in Jesus as Savior, but because they all include some element of merit or performance, they cancel God's grace. No one can be saved if that person is bargaining for or trying to earn God's grace and salvation. Salvation by grace means that all we can do is receive what is given to us. That is where faith comes in. It is the instrument by which we can receive God's gift of eternal salvation. Grace not works. Let's start with the clearest statement about grace and salvation, Ephesians 2, 8-9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Here are some simple observations. 1. It is God's grace that saves us. 2. Faith is the means by which we receive that grace. 3. That grace does not originate from within us. 4. The salvation we receive through faith is a gift from God. 5. Salvation by grace through faith excludes any of our good works. 6. Earning salvation by works would allow one to boast, which implies it would steal God's glory. In the phrase, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, the words that and if refer to the whole idea of salvation by the free 
grace of God through faith. Those words do not refer only to grace or faith because to do so would require a different form than we see in the original language. This salvation does not originate from within us, for there is nothing in us that can ever deserve God's grace. If we could do something to deserve it, like good works, then as the verse says, we could boast. But think about that. We could boast in the face of God who has given his only son. In essence, we would be saying that God's son was not enough for our salvation, that the payment God made is not worthy as what we could do for ourselves. That would be the ultimate insult to God. Imagine the insult you would feel if you sold everything you had to bail your friend out of jail, and then that friend boasted that he earned his way out by working hard and behaving well. Your gift would be despised, your benevolence ignored. Now, imagine how you would feel if that price you paid was your only beloved son. This verse affirms our understanding of grace as a totally undeserved and unmerited free gift of God. If we were to work for it, bargain for it, or offer any kind of commitment or obedience for it, it would cease to be grace. That leaves us with only one option. We must believe God for his gift. That is what faith does. It simply receives the gift of eternal life, which God gives to us through the person and work of his Son, Jesus. So you see how grace requires that we come to God empty-handed. We have nothing to bring, nothing to offer him for the gift, no way to pay for it. An empty, outstretched hand is a good illustration of faith. It has nothing to offer. It can only receive what is given. So it is with our salvation. We receive God's eternal life by simply believing that his promise to us is true, that whoever believes in Jesus Christ has everlasting life. Grace is not something we achieve. It's something we receive. What faith means. Faith is the noun for the Greek verb to believe, so that to believe in something is the same as having faith in something. Let's be clear about what it means to believe. To believe something means that we are convinced or persuaded that it is true. We cannot almost believe something. We either believe it or we don't. Let's say, for example, someone asked you, do you believe that 5 plus 15 equals 20? You could answer, 1, yes, I believe it. 2, no, I don't believe it. Or 3, I'm not sure. If you're not sure, then you don't yet believe that it's true. Here's another example. You need to pay the rent by midnight or you'll be evicted, but your checking account is empty. I tell you that I've deposited enough funds in your account to pay the rent and that you can go ahead and write a check for the rent. Again, your options are these. One, you believe me and you write the check. Two, you don't believe me and you don't write the check. Three, you're not sure if you should believe me. If you're not sure, you'd be foolish to write a check because if I'm not telling you the truth, the check will bounce and you'll be evicted. The difference lies in how trustworthy you consider my words to be. If you know me enough to be persuaded that I'm trustworthy, you'll believe my words. If you know me to be untrustworthy, you would rightly not believe my words. If you don't know me, you'd be gambling to write a check and lucky if it didn't bounce. When it comes to our salvation, we must believe that God's promise is true, that if we simply and only believe in his son and what he has done for us, died for our sins and rose from the dead, he will give us eternal life. 
God is perfectly trustworthy and faithful to his promises. Simply believe, only believe. About 2,000 years ago, a frightened jailer asked an urgent question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The Apostle Paul answered simply, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts 16, 30-31 Christians have been arguing about that answer ever since. Clearly, Paul meant believe in Jesus as the one who can save, the Savior. He refers to Jesus Christ as Lord, which implies, first of all, Jesus' deity, but it is also a title of respect. The jailer used the same Greek word, also translated sirs, to address Paul and Silas with respect. The jailer needed simply to believe that Jesus is the divine one who could save him. Though not all is known or disclosed in this account, it implies that Paul and Silas told the Philippian jailer about Jesus' provision of salvation through his death and resurrection, which was the message being preached by the Christians. To believe, the jailer must simply accept Jesus' promise as true because of who Jesus is and what he did. But the jailer also needed only to believe. That is, he did not need to do anything else. No good works to do, no rules to keep, no self-improvement to achieve, no promises to make. He did not need to add anything to his faith in God's promise and provision. His simple faith was enough to receive God's gift. This is where many people go wrong in their understanding of grace. They say that grace must be earned or deserved. Therefore, faith must include works or prove itself by works. Or they say faith involves total surrender to Jesus as the master of one's life. Or that faith is a commitment we make to God. These incorrect views of grace will be discussed in the next chapter. Such views are seen as wrong when we understand the true meaning of grace. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. To be saved by grace means that we believe God's promise of eternal life rather than try to earn it or merit it in some way. Salvation through faith means that we bring nothing to God except our sin because we accept God's promise as true. Grace allows no other options except faith. Being saved simply by grace requires that we receive God's promise simply through faith. Review questions. 1. Explain the nature of a gift. When does something cease to be a gift? 2. Why is salvation available to us only through faith? 3. What are some consequences of relying on our works to save us? 4. How do some contemporary gospel presentations obscure or confuse the biblical concept of salvation by grace through faith? To follow up on our chapter of Saved by Grace, um, we have a special guest with us today, Fred Che, Dr. Fred Che, uh, who is also a personal friend and colleague of many years. Um, good, to, good to be with you today, Fred. Charlie, good to be with you. I remember when I first met you, it was 1979 in the old days at Dallas Seminary. We were both a lot younger. I think we were, and your memory is a lot better than mine also. <laughs> 
I don't know what year it was, but I certainly remember you from from Dallas Theological Seminary, and uh, and you got your um, Doctor of Ministry where at Dallas Seminary at Dallas Seminary, what I thought, and then you went on to Phoenix Seminary to teach, um, and uh, had a great influence out there with people, uh, so that there are a number of pastors and churches out there as a legacy, and and really I we. Your theology kind of cost you your job in the end, um, and that's what the subject of our conversation is today. But I wanted to mention also that Fred was uh, an active part of the Free Race Alliance, uh, and his input is still there today. And he's also directed the Free Race Alliance for a number of years, and uh, now he is involved with Grace School of Theology as uh, new the new dean, academic dean. Am I not right? Head of the that's DMED right. program. Still, also, and head of Grace Theology Press. Uh, it sounds like you're really enjoying your retirement. Well, you know, there's no word retirement in the Bible, so I guess I got to keep going till we drop. But uh, it's been a lot of fun, a lot of challenge, and I, I enjoy what I do. Well, then it's not work. You know, uh, one of my last conversations with Dr. Charles Ryrie, he was in his 80s, low 80s, and uh, he said, I don't understand these guys. Uh, they they retire from ministry and then they just sit around and don't do anything. He said, I'm going to keep going as long as the Lord lets me. And he was preparing for a trip to China because they were inaugurating and dedicating his Chinese translation of the Ryrie Study Bible. I think that was his last international trip. But, you know, uh, Dr. Ryrie, God bless his soul, um, went on to the end. And I remember his prayer request was that uh, from Psalm 90 that Lord teach me to number my days and establish the work of my hands. And yeah, certain God certainly answered that prayer. But, well, good to have you with us. And uh, one of the things, values of having Fred with us today is that he is teaching constantly um, the position of salvation by grace through faith alone and is very familiar with a lot of the work that is out there. So we're going to talk to him about that. One of the books he wrote was with John uh korea it's called the faith that saves and we'll talk about later he can tell us where to get these resources but let's just start out with uh when we talk about salvation by grace through faith uh, we've already had some discussion about what is grace but what is your definition of faith well charlie that's a very um important word and as you know it's kind of at the center of the discussion so we have two poles on that. On the one side, you have people who will use the word faith, but they mean a lot more than just faith. They would surround it with words like trust, which is not a bad word, but then it seems to also include the idea of commitment and surrendering and allegiance. And if you start walking down that road, there's no end in sight. You come off to the other side and say, well, it's simply by grace, but it's simply by faith. And all that means is to be persuaded that something is true. So you're looking at two extremes on the, on the spectrum. From my perspective, I'm comfortable with the word persuasion. I'm comfortable with the word trust, as long as we have a connotation that doesn't take us down the, the idea of I have to personally surrender, I have to yield, I have to commit, I have to promise, and I have to stop doing certain things. This is where we got in trouble with a book many years ago, 1970, a book called Today's Gospel, Authentic or Synthetic 
by Walter Chantry. Oh, yeah. And, uh-huh. Yeah, and Chantry influenced Dr. John MacArthur, and we were off to the races on this topic. So, <laughs> so faith took on such a voluminous, I mean, it just became huge, unending. And in fact, today, I think the, the modern expression of this is by a man named uh, Dr. Bates, Matthew Bates. He has written two books, one called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Yeah, I've looked at that book. Yeah, this is, and, and, and he was a former Catholic, I believe. He did his doctoral yes. work at Notre Dame. He teaches at a Catholic college, but he comes up with the idea that faith is not persuasion. It's not even surrender. It's total allegiance to King Jesus. King Jesus, and, yeah. And anything less is not real. He then had another book called Gospel Allegiance, because, you know, when you write one book and it sells well, what do you do? You write another book and it sells well. <laughs> and, and in fact, in his second book, he actually says that John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and John Piper have not gone far enough with their understanding of faith as obedience. It's oh not God. just obedience. It's total allegiance to the cosmic King Jesus. And if you don't have that, you cannot be saved. Well, I have a feeling the Apostle Paul would be rolling in his grave if he was still there when he heard that. Yeah, and the Philippian jailer might not be in heaven at all. Uh, <laughs> From Galatians 16. I mean, Acts 16.31. And, and the predecessor to that book was, is, in my opinion, just as uh, frightening, dangerous. Uh, by Alan Stanley, salvation is not as easy as you think, based on his doctoral dissertation, based on Matthew 7. So many people gravitate to that Matthew 7 passage, but uh, you're familiar with uh, Stanley's book as well, because he's a, oh, yeah. he's an alumnus, uh, fellow alumna, alumnus of ours. He's, uh, you know, he, he wrote this book, and, and I think some people at Dallas were surprised that it got through the dissertation process, that uh, you know, because it's so anti so many things that the Dallas Seminary would hold to. And then he took that book and he cut it into a more popular version of the book. So now you got two books out there yeah. based on his dissertation that are essentially saying, if you do not have works, you are not saved. If you ask Dr. Stanley, are you saved by works? He said, oh, no, you're not saved by works. But if you don't have works, you're not saved. And so those two get conflated together. And again, we're down to something very confusing. I think he says clearly in his book, if I recall, that Jesus taught salvation by works. I think that's almost a quote, if I remember. Well, that's actually the title of the book. Did Jesus teach salvation by works? And the implied answer and the stated answer is yes. But then he backs away to say, well, I'm not I'm not a heretic. But people like us look at that and say, well, that is heretical because that's not New Testament doctrine. Oh, my goodness. So we need a clear understanding of what faith is. And you, you call it persuasion. I sometimes use the word being convinced of something, being convinced of the trustworthiness of something. And, and when we use the word trust, I think we've got to be careful how we use it. Uh, but if you, de- if you have faith in something, then you're depending on something. And if you're depending on something, then you're trusting it in that sense. It doesn't mean that you're committing your, your life and and, and everything to Jesus as master. Uh, so where do you think the will comes in in all of this? Well, you know, there are those people who say that faith involves the will. And so if you involve the will, some people would say, well, that sounds like a work. So now you're saying you're saved by work. Well, no, we're not saying you're saved by work. 
So others want to kind of protect it by saying, well, no, it's only persuasion. You are persuaded that two and two is four. You are persuaded of a certain set of facts. No will, just a mental assenting to something as now being believed. Well, it seems to me I could I could live with that definition as long as they were willing, no pun intended, they yeah. were willing to say that nobody ever believes something without willfully thinking about it. No one is ever persuaded unless they are willfully engaging in analyzing the data, the evidence, the argument. So if, if you want to keep them separate that way, I guess you could. But as long as you realize nobody ever is persuaded apart from their willful action to get persuaded. So that's how I look at them separately. So if somebody says you, you have to have the will, willingness to believe, I have no problem with that. If they tell me you have to be persuaded, I have no problem with that. I just understand how both of those have to work together. They, they have to be operational. They have to be willing to hear the gospel. They have to be willing to think about it. Yep. Um, they have to be willing to consider its credibility. So they have to consider the evidence. Yep. And that, that takes an act of the will. So they're so closely related. It's such a fine line. It, it, it's often difficult to draw that line. Um, and we can continue to have that discussion, and people always will. Um, but why, why do you think, uh, in your opinion, when we talk about being saved by grace, as Ephesians 2, 8, 9, very well-known passage, we're saved by grace through faith. Why is faith necessary to the gospel of grace? Well, faith is necessary as the, the means of by which we receive the gift, right? I mean, the New Testament talks about this is a gift from God. It's a gift that God gives us. Well, the question is, is faith part of that gift? And so many of our Reformed friends would say, yes, faith is the gift. Therefore, if God doesn't give you the supernatural gift, you can't be saved. And of course, they run it back all the way to the beginning to say, God supernaturally elects you. Then God supernaturally calls you. Then God supernaturally regenerates you. Remember, you're a dead corpse. You haven't done anything yet because you can't. And then God supernaturally gives you the gift of grace through uh, the, the grace of faith. And then, and only then, do you believe? And of course, it's all of God and not of you. But then again, if you don't have faith, you're not saved. So you have to be doing something, at least, you know, being persuaded of something. So they want the they want faith to be a gift of God because you're a dead corpse and can do nothing. But I'm not sure Ephesians 2, 8, 9 actually says that. I think it's more likely saying that the the salvation through faith is a gift, or the grace given that leads to salvation through faith is a gift. The whole chain is a gift. And there's Numerous people who've done very good grammatical analysis of the passage to clarify that. So it seems to me that it's not faith that's the gift. It's the salvation by grace through faith that's a gift. And right. although it is true I'm, a, I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, Paul makes that clear in Romans 2, but that doesn't mean I'm a dead corpse because I'm pretty lively as a dead corpse. And if you look in the Old Testament, you got people like Nebuchadnezzar and a couple of the pharaohs they're spoken of as having a spiritual sensitivity. Their spirit was troubled. Their spirit was mindful. In fact, in Acts uh, 17, all men grope for God. All men are real. That doesn't sound like a dead corpse to me. Yeah, I start in Genesis uh, where Adam and Eve had a conversation with God. <laughs> I mean, they, they weren't dead. And then uh, it's a figure of speech I think that people need to understand also in the par parable of the prodigal son. 
um, he was dead, but now he's alive. Well, he was, he was never de- physically dead or a corpse. So it's a figure of speech to, to mean, you know, separated in, in some way, spiritually separated. Um, so, and, and you and I know that faith used in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 can't be the gift dramatically because we know the Greek grammar doesn't allow that. that it, um, it, uh, it doesn't use the proper grammar to call faith the gift without getting too technical about that. But I found that in my research that even old reformed commentators agreed with that assessment about the grammar in, in that passage um, uh, without imputing and bringing in their theology. Um, so when Paul said to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you must be saved, uh, he wasn't accused of easy believism. Uh, you've heard that accusation many times. And h- how do you answer that? Well, the Apostle Paul simply told the jailer to his question, what must I do to be saved? That's the kind of question Paul likes. That's a softball pitch. (laughs) And he steps into it and says, hey, here it is. One thing only, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and Lord there, right? That could either be a reference to deity or it could be a reference to a proper, you know, sir. And um, the jailer uses that term, I think, also to refer to Paul. But in this case, he's saying you need to understand if you believe that's the action in the person, that's the identity, the Lord Jesus Christ, here's the result, you shall be saved and your household. And evidently he went back and preached or something happened and the household got saved. So I don't think we get a lot more information in that passage, but we get enough to understand part of the theology of salvation by grace through faith in that passage. It's a picture. It's a beautiful picture. The ugliest, wretched person you could find needs to go to heaven, and he goes to heaven the same way Paul did and in the same way you and I do, by faith in Christ, period. Nothing else. He didn't say you got to quit your job. He didn't say you got to give up your pension. He didn't say you got to walk away from the disgustingness of all this. He didn't say anything. He said, here it is. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Of course, the way I think some misunderstand and teach it is they, they say, well, Paul was emphasizing the lordship of Christ, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, surrender your life to him as Lord. But on the other hand, what would a Philippian pagan Philippian jailer know about what Jesus demands of his life? So it doesn't make much sense to interpret it that way. It seems like it's a case of reading something into that, right? Mm-hmm. They're reading something into that. And then again, of course, they say, if you don't take it that way, then using your term, well, that's easy believism. Well, I, I do remember Dr. Ryrie once saying, is it really easy to believe in a God you can't see? And is it really easy to believe in heaven and hell that you don't know? And is it really easy to believe that you're a bad person going to go to hell for all eternity? Is it really easy to believe that God would send his son to die for you? Is all that easy? Heavens, no, that's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. It's very difficult for some people uh, to believe and get over some of those uh, intellectual or emotional obstacles. So, um, you know, where a lot of people go wrong is, I think, in their invitations and how they, they can present the gospel as Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead and offering eternal life. But in their invitations, things get mixed up. Uh, how do you see some of these? contemporary gospel invitations getting off track 
when it comes to faith? Well, it seems like, and, and I think most of these people have good motives. So I'm not imputing anybody's motive for what they're doing. They're, they genuinely want people to come to Christ. Um, Dr. MacArthur, I know for a fact, Dr. Grudem, I know for a fact, their goal is to keep the church pure and to share the gospel and win people to the Lord. Their concern is that, well, we're watering down the gospel so that people aren't really repenting and changing their life and promising to be good. And so they make the gospel invitation, then say, well, now, if you're going to believe this is what Jesus wants, it's only by belief. However, you need to count the cost. Luke 14, you need to think about what this could cost you, and you need to be willing to surrender your life and commit your life and promise to stop doing all this sin, because if you're involved in, in a homosexual lifestyle, you have to stop that before Jesus will forgive you of your sin. Well, that seems pretty strange to me. How, the, how in the world can he do that apart from being saved and born again? He doesn't have the, the ability to do that. So the, I think their, their motive is good and genuine. They want the church pure, and they want people to be good. But Jesus isn't after good people. He's after bad people who need eternal life. And so he offers the free gift. And instead of saying, well, you need to surrender enough, it becomes a problem. In fact, a friend of ours, Larry Moyer, many, many years ago, wrote his book, Free and Clear. Now, that is book. a gr great yeah. book, Free and Clear. And uh, another guy, Fred Librand, you, you remember Fred, we were all buddies together. He wrote yep. this book, Back to Back Faith. To faith. Uh -huh. And that's a very helpful book as well. And he deals with it from dealing with Dr. Piper. And Dr. Moyer comes from a more positive. He's trying to share the simplicity and the goodness of it. And Librand's trying to deal with the problematic side from the Reformed viewpoint of um, countering what they call easy believism. But, to, but both books do a very good job of helping us understand that it's not easy believism. It's simply being persuaded that I'm a sinner. I'm not a good person. I'm a sinner. And being persuaded that Jesus isn't a dead Jew. He's the risen Lord. Yeah. And he can give me eternal life. Now, that's not easy to believe. No, it's not. I, I agree with you that their motives are sincere when they, what we would call lordship salvation, add these things to uh, faith or to redefine faith as commitment. Uh, their motives are clear, but it makes me wonder if they're getting any different result than we who teach uh, salvation by faith alone and Christ alone. Uh, now, you, we could compare churches, uh, but I'm sure that there are many who are in their church who have sinned or are living in sin. The thing is, it, which my, my theory would be, is that those who are living in sin would probably not continue to go to that church. Whereas in a grace-oriented church, I call them, they would continue to go because we give them the room and the space to continue to work on their issues and not just pronounce them unsaved in need of salvation. Uh, but the other system could burn you out pretty easily by always trying to live up to people's expectations. So, you know, I, I, I think we see that historically. In fact, a book that you recommended to me a few years ago, a book called Making Heretics. Yeah. You recommended that to me, and I went out and got it, and the subtitle is called Militant Protestantism and Free Grace in Massachusetts, 1636 to 1641. Now, this was the key issue in the pre-colonial colonial period of America, and this was a major issue. In fact, I read this book, and I found it so helpful, I called the author, 
I found him. He's down at the University of Georgia teaching history. So I called him up and we had a delightful time and uh, talking about his book and talking about things today. And his point was very simple. The most important issue in the colonial America was the free grace issue. And the result was that people lacked assurance and therefore legalism took over. And therefore the next generation left the church because they couldn't live up to the standard. And they, uh, they also got greedy. I think they got successful in their work, hard work ethic and they made money. And so they kind of left the church and that caused all sorts of repositioning of the uh, the covenant of grace with inside the Presbyterian Church in America. Oh. So so this has been an issue from day one in America. In fact, yeah. he says the number one issue was the doctrine of assurance, and part of that came because there was a bad understanding of what really grace theology was all about. You know, it, it, I would say that's been the issue ever since the gospel's been preached. Also, it's just been uh, under different uh, terminology and so forth. So the sequel to the book, I read the book, but the sequel to the book is that people stop going to church the next generation. Exactly. That's interesting. And, so, and they also, what they created was a, you know, theologically, how do we deal with that? So what they, it was called, the, it was called Stoddardism, as I recall, but they created the halfway covenant law that basically said, well, okay, if your kids go bad, they're still in the covenant community by virtue of the parents. But if the grandkids go bad, they may be not in the covenant community. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, this is sociology trying to cover people who can't live up to the legalism. Ooh. Oh, my goodness. What about adopted children? <laughs> That's another question. <laughs> and, and by the way, why do you think we needed a first great awakening and a second great awakening? Because everybody was dead and went to sleep. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. people started sinning again, so we needed a great awakening, which we got. So isn't that the consequence of when we add something to faith uh, in our gospel presentation? Whenever we add uh, you're saved by grace through faith plus, or you're saved by grace through faith, but you have to do something. You have to repent of your sins. You have to turn from your sins. You have to commit your life. It, we're always going to throw a wrench into the, the mechanism of assurance. We have no assurance when it, based on our performance. Um, and that, that, that's why simple faith, I don't call it easy faith either. It's simple faith is crucial to the gospel of grace. You know, even John Calvin realized that very danger. He said, if we look to ourselves for assurance, it is sure damnation. Yeah. Because he knew every day I have an idol factory inside of me creating <laughs> idols. And he knew that if you look to your works, it was sure damnation. Unfortunately, he created a system that did that very thing. Wow. An idol factory. <laughs> Did he use that term or is that yours? I think that was his term. Idol factory. Okay. Well, that's that's good. Yeah, we cannot look to our works. It, it just condemns people, especially those who are more introspective than others or struggling with sin and uh, past habits and things like that. Well, Fred, uh, uh, you, you have, you're so articulate. Uh, you have to be because you're teaching doctoral class students <laughs> and you've done a great job. But uh, some listening today might be confused about the role of works in their salvation. So can you take a moment just to explain uh, how they can be saved apart from works and the role that works does have in their life? Well, sure. We're, we're saved by faith without works because the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John and the Apostle Peter say so. So I'm going to trust them. 
So we're saying by grace, through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. So textually, documentary, we know works do not play any role in the justification because it's justification by faith alone. Now, the problem is, if you we start, if we're not going to front load the gospel, we back load the gospel. We say, well, okay, you're saved by faith alone, but if you don't have works, you're not saved. So now we're impugning the quality or the nature or the type of faith. And so all of a sudden we're evaluating works and we and then we become fruit inspectors. So the danger is how many works are we talking about? And by the way, what list do you have? I remember asking Wayne Grudem this numerous times and John MacArthur as well. Where is the list? Where's the yeah. list? And, yeah. and, and and even if I do one uh, one of those on the list, how many times before I'm no longer available to be saved? There's no list. Well, there are sin lists in the New Testament, but they don't question our salvation, but they include things like pride and disobedient parents. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that uh, are, are just habitual issues with people like, like pride. Um, so there is no definitive list. And that's the, there's no way of quantifying uh, how many works, how long you have to do them. And that's why it can be so confusing to people. You know, one of the, the dangers of this is um, I asked a friend of mine who was an Old Testament professor, and uh, we actually were at Dr. Grudem's house having dinner. We'd go over there and have pizza once a month and play cards. We didn't bet money. We just played cards and had a great time. And we were in, in his living room once, the three of us, and I asked my Old Testament friend, I said, Paul, where is Solomon? And he said, oh, Solomon's in hell. Hmm. And I said, now, you mean the, the Hades, hell, fire, eternal judgment? He said, yeah, hell, forever and ever. And Dr. Grudem said, well, wait a minute, Paul, you don't really mean that, do you? And he said, oh, yeah, he's in hell. And I said, Wayne, that's just the theology worked out. I mean, he didn't finish to the end. He didn't have good works. Years later, I asked the, another Old Testament professor at our school. He graduated from Southern Seminary. I said, where is Solomon? He said, he's probably in hell. Mm-hmm. And I said, how come? He didn't finish well. He became an idolater. So that list and that duration of sin, that got him into hell. That's amazing that people would think that a writer of scripture like Solomon, <laughs> uh, who we know apostatized at the end of his life, uh, would be in hell, that God would use someone in hell to, to write uh, so much of the scripture for us. But that's where that system leads. And uh, it, with backloading, the gospel of free grace with our performance and our works and trying to decide whether we are uh, uh, saved by an impossible uh, way of measuring or quantifying how good we're doing. I love what Paul says in first Corinthians four. He says, I'm going to wait for that day. I don't even judge myself. He says, I'm going to wait for that day. He's waiting for the, the, the judgment seat of Christ to know how he did not whether he's determined not to determine whether he's saved but um well fred uh, we appreciate the input on on the subject of saved by grace and uh, you've done some really great writing besides the book faith that saves with john Correa. you've written or edited and wrote in a defense of free grace theology which is a really great book with a lot of uh, uh, good contributors there and uh, that that ought to be noted. And you also wrote a book on suffering, which is called 
Suffering successfully. Suffering successfully. And I'm sure you've written more than that. Well, I wrote a book on medical ethics, uh, which has nothing to do with the gospel message, but it has a lot to do with ethical issues. And then we have a new book coming out. Uh, it's called Living by Grace. And in fact, you're one of the authors in that. And we've we've tried to kind of bring everything down to the, you know, bring the cookies down to the table here and make it a very clear, basic understanding of how does grace operate in my daily life. And so you and Dave Anderson and Mark Ray and a few others, Phil Gungden, have written some wonderful chapters that people can read and understand and say, this is how grace impacts my life today. Yeah. So, and those books can be obtained uh, and you can be also reached at Grace School of Theology through through uh, that ministry. Um, but you also have a, your own ministry that you started some years ago called Grace Line Ministries. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's called Grace Line because somebody took Grace Life. So I had to go with the second best. Who would do that? <laughs> Who would do that? Uh, Grace Line was started as a way for me to be able, I was teaching in Phoenix Seminary at the time, and this gave me the opportunity to put together conferences and seminars and train pastors and mentor pastors, and then realizing that there's a lot of people in a lot of churches that need this as well. So we, we were able to reach out and hold meetings and teaching times and put resources together for both elders and pastors and then just general population of church. So a lot of what I do now is put under Grace School Theology and Grace Theology Press, but I still have opportunity to mentor pastors and train them up. So this has been a, a wonderful opportunity for us to be able to do this, even though we didn't get the name I wanted because you took it before <laughs> me. Yeah, you always remind me of that. Sorry about that. But uh, great. The website is graceline.net. Graceline.net. And they can find more resources from you on that, right? Sure. And all of our books are on Amazon. So any of the books we've talked about, you just go to Amazon and, and pick them up there. Yeah. Well, good. Well, Fred, thank you for your time and thank you for being with us. I think it was a very uh, good conversation. People are going to be uh, listening to this and going away with a little bit uh, better understanding what it means to be saved by grace through faith. So we appreciate you. Well, thank you so much for having me, Charlie. It's always fun to be with you. We'll look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.